Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me. And if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front. And they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company. And if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. So I'm super excited to be here today with Eva Hagberg-Fisher, who's the New York-based author of How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. She's also written slash co-written for other books about architecture. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wired, Dwell, Guernica, and other publications. She has degrees in architecture from Princeton University and UC Berkeley and received a PhD in visual and narrative culture from UC Berkeley. So welcome, Eva. Hi. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So can you just start by telling listeners what How to Be Loved is about, please? Yes. Um, So my pinned tweet says that it's actually a critique of capitalism dressed up as a narrative about friendship with a little bit of chronic illness and non-chronic illness to sort of move the plot along. Interesting. So that's one answer. Another answer is that it is a memoir about how three friends in particular saved my life when I needed it to be saved in various and extremely different ways. So there's a friend, Layla, who I meet when I'm in my late teens, early 20s, and she saved my life in a specific way. And then my friend Allison, who when I was very, very, very sick and really convinced that I was going to die, sort of showed me how to live through that. And then my friend Lauren, who went on this like pretty epic desert adventure with me. That's so funny. Yeah. Because when I read it, I thought that the life-saving friendship was just Allison's. I didn't realize you were referring to all the different ones at the different times. Yes, I was referring to the different ones. And also my book editor said that I shouldn't name that many people, but there are a lot of sort of offstage unnamed friends who also saved my life. And I try to make observations about, there's a section in the book where I talk about going to see RoboCop before heart surgery, Mm because I like might have ended up with a pacemaker and I wanted to celebrate it by celebrating, Mm -hmm. oh, what is that actor's name? The guy who played RoboCop. And there's just like a group of people, right? And so there's this idea that like a group can be inexhaustible in the way that individual people cannot be Hmm. by definition. So yeah, I wanted it to be more generally about friendship, about the ways in which my friends have been, I think, my truest love stories, for sure. And also a little bit of critique of the the sort of like anti-capitalist, anti-progress part is in trying to articulate ways in which we can find comfort without looking to the future. So when I got sick, a lot of people were like, this will end, like this will get better, you will improve and you'll get back to where you were. And I kept being like, that actually might not happen for me, like I might just get worse. And so can I find comfort without looking at progress and improvement? And I think that was sort of the main argumentative thread throughout the book was like, can I find comfort in the present moment even if things will never get better? And the answer eventually was yes, Hmm. I can. When did you decide to write this book? At what stage? So I'd always wanted to write a book since I was like four. This book 
started coming to life when I was in the desert. I was living in a tent for various reasons that I go into. And I was like, I need to make some, I mean, I need something to do. Like I need some sort of project. Maybe I'll write a book proposal about this. And so I opened up my computer in the tent and I just wrote the phrase, how to be loved. Like I just knew that that was going to be, I didn't know that that would be the actual title, but I knew that it would be the sort of driving theme of the book. And then I wrote a sample chapter and then an agent emailed me because somebody had recommended that she get, it was sort of this like very perfect kismet moment where I was working on this and an agent approached me and then I ended up signing with her and then we did six proposals and then I sold the sixth. So Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. So let's just go right into all of your great biggest <laughs> issues in your whole life now that we're two minutes into this interview. So when you went to boarding school, mm-hmm. you talked about when you first started, first had your first drink, basically, mm-hmm. and you joined the Literary Society Quote, because I thought I could finally find my tribe of book-obsessed readers. I went for the books, but I became hooked by the alcohol. Once I started drinking, I was able to access some different Eva, some other Eva. One archer peach schnapps and lemonade in, and suddenly I was funny, and the world made sense to me. I knew I had arrived. Mm. So tell me about that first moment, and then after that. (laughs) So... So I went to boarding school in the UK, which was very culturally different from central Canada where I'd been living. And that boarding school was the second school that I went to. I I accidentally ended up at a reform school for my first three months and definitely got into like all sorts of quote unquote bad behavior. Like I started smoking. Um, I started like smoking pot. I mean, I was just this like very rebellious 13, 14 year old. And then my parents were like, okay, we need to get you to a better school. So I go to this better school. And I came in halfway through the first year. There were a lot of rumors around my arrival. One of the rumors was that I had, like, been impregnated by a teacher at the other school, which was not—had no basis, in fact, at all, right? But I sort of arrived under this weird cloud, and also I had an American accent, and I sort of got made fun of, and so I was getting, like, low-key, like, ignored slash bullied, and I was just truly pathologically shy, like, so shy I could not introduce myself to anybody. I would just, like, stand there and just, like, stare at people until they talked to me, which they often— would not because it was weird that I was just standing there and staring at them. And so this was sort of my vibe. And then great. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. You're really selling yourself here. <laughs> I know, totally peaked. <laughs> so I yeah, it was just like weird and like I think I I the first thing that I said in class was like how much I loved Shakespeare, which is like not a thing you should say when you're 14 at your new school. And so so that's the scene, right? Is like this is who I am. And then my friends, not my friends, my 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 like classmates. I sort of follow them out, you know, and and the school had this weird thing where you could go out every Saturday night for two hours to, like, go to a restaurant. But they all knew that we would go to bars because you could drink at 16 in the UK. So I went to this bar. Somebody gives me a drink. I drink the drink, and the coolest kid in school sits next to me and is like, hi, like, I don't think that we've met. And I said, I'm Eva. And he was like, you're not Eva. And, like, that moment solidified my alcoholism. Like, he was just like, you are not the person that I thought you were. You are not the person that I've been socially rejecting. And in my brain, I was like, when I'm drunk, I don't have to be 
Eva, who is awkward, loves Shakespeare, stares at people, is pathologically shy, all these things. And then that just, like, I just wanted that feeling of belonging and security and Hugo Tischler being like, you're not Eva, you're mm-hmm. somebody cool. Yeah. I mean, that was the sort of, like, the second part of the, the, the implied second part of the sentence was, like, you're cool, so you can't be Eva. Right, right. Um, and so I've sought for the rest of my life in various ways to continue to be, like, not Eva. And that's one of the things that Allison really— you know, I keep trying to, like, remember what what she would say right now. And she kept being like, yeah, no, you are Eva. And, you know, you're definitely not for everyone. But, like, you're very good at being Eva. So just keep being Eva. And I'm like, mm, but maybe mm-hmm. I could recapture that, like, 15-year-old magic moment and be like, oh, I don't have to be Eva right now. Hmm. So one might argue that there are other people in that situation who felt equally sort of liberated by drinking who maybe don't end up becoming alcoholic mm. type. No? You think I, no, I mean, I have— I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is like I talk to people who haven't decided to be sober, and I'm like, so you could drink all the time mm-hmm. if you wanted to, but you just don't want to? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I, we just don't feel like being drunk all the time. Mm. And I'm like, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. A friend of mine said once, he's like, if I weren't an alcoholic, I'd be drunk all the time. And I just think that's the that's the best description of alcoholism, of like alcoholic logic. And because of that, though, you end up meeting Allison, who becomes yeah. like the most, one of the most important people in your life, basically. Yeah. I mean, everything good in my life has ultimately stemmed from the fact that I have a lot of help not drinking. Okay. I thought you were going to say from drinking, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I got to tell my daughter, don't listen to this episode. Like, I'm already, like, traumatized by the fact that you're, like, smoking pot and all this stuff at 13. And, like, now that I have almost 12-year-olds, I'm, like, quaking in my boots. So now, like, definitely turn it off. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, it all, you know, I, it was it was terrible and difficult and painful. And, and I experienced a lot of wreckage. But now, I mean, it got so dark that I had to ask for so much help, and I had to be willing to accept it. And so now my life is so wildly different, Yeah, and I'm grateful for that. But, you know, there are definitely times where I'm like, oh, I wish that I could just— Actually, no, I don't wish that I could just have a glass of wine with dinner. I wish that I could just Mm low-key do a lot of drugs for a week and then have no consequences. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Have you read this book, Drinking a Love Story by Caroline Knapp? Yes, I read it. one of my favorites. So good. good. Anyway, that made me think of that. So— in addition to taking the wreckage and making it into this fantastic book, also in the book, you go through all this illness physically, mm-hmm. which is insane. I emailed you after. I was like, I, I literally got to certain <laughs> chapters, and I was like, not again. No. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's like, I couldn't believe it. All the yeah. stuff that happened to you, insane. Mm-hmm. And that I didn't see it coming. Like, you didn't, mm-hmm. um, which was good. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't, uh, anyway. Yeah. In the end, there was some sort of resolution to some part of it. Mm-hmm. How did it feel, like, even writing the whole thing and then getting to a place at the end where you could see through the clouds? The, mm. Like, did it feel like everything was tied up in a bow, or did it feel, like, not at all? Or So that was one of the huge challenges of structuring the book, and I initially did not want to have any sort of resolved ending. Mm-hmm. And the first draft ended with me, like, walking around one of the rocks in Sedona and just being like, well, who knows what's going to happen? 
And I was like, no, it's so, it's it's like such a great argument to just like leave the reader totally hanging, you know? And thankfully I have like a really good editor who was like, this is not an ending. I'm yeah. laughing because I would have been like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, one of the things that Brad Listy talked about was this idea of having like good manners as a writer, mm. which I sort of love, right? And so- What's, I was, what's included in that? Having, like, being generous and gentle with the reader in a way. And so when I was first writing the book, I, I was still, I sold it in May 2016. I was still taking, like, 45 pills a day to try and, like, regulate my nervous system. I was still going, like, I was still pretty angry about what had happened. And so my approach to the reader was not, I did not have good manners. I wanted the reader to, like, feel the sort of displacement and confusion that I felt, which is why I didn't want there to be an ending. I was like, listen, I don't get an ending in real life. Real life doesn't have endings. You don't get an ending as a reader. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that, you know, time exists. And so I got to just have more time to process all of that while I was writing earlier chapters. And then by the time I came to rewrite the last section, I was sort of okay giving some kind of ending, some sort of resolution. And it was also true, which is that I had gotten a lot better. I had stopped taking all my medication. I mean, now I still feel not great some days and I feel great other days and I don't really know why and I still sort of do stuff, but I'm not as like obsessed with my health as I used to be. But I really, I mean, I wanted to end not on a note necessarily of like, and now we have a diagnosis and everything makes sense, but I wanted to end on like an emotionally hopeful note, which mm -hmm. is just like, listen, like I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust that friendship will be part of it. And that's been true. I mean, a couple months before the book came out, I went to see a surgeon here and I had to get another surgery for endometriosis. And I called my editor and I was like, I am sort of mortified because, you know, the book has this sort of like, slightly triumphant ending. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I don't have to go to, do but now I have to do this thing. And she was like, yeah, um, I have a really good book to recommend to you for feeling shame and needing friendship. It's called How to Be Loved. And you wrote it. And I was like, great. The book keeps like teaching me how to resolve my life in a way. That's so great. Yeah. It's like you created your own tool. Well, I wrote the book that I wanted to write when I was sick. I mean, that was so, because I was so starving to, to like the, the, read You wrote something. the book you wanted to read when you were sick? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Wow. So when you were asking about the complications of brain surgery, this was early in the book, you said, what other complications could I have asked about that I would finally, through the way in which I was loved for the next four years, the next lifetime even, find and build the self I had been so desperately searching for, that it would be this, this sickness that would break me open, that it would take something so dramatic, so completely against my will, to shake me out of the insecurity and crushing self-judgment I'd lived with for decades. Would you consider this some sort of an upside if you could say that there's any upside mm. to any of it? I need to reread that section because I am full of crushing insecurity and self-doubt at the moment. I'm like, wait, I haven't read my book in a while. I need to reread it. You need to reread it. it. I on. do need to reread yeah. it. That is definitely an upside. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because my friend Lauren and I talk a lot about sort of silver linings or the idea that things were were worth it in a way. And I feel like it's a trick of my brain to be like, everything ended up okay. So it was great, you know, but I, I'm still really ambivalent on that. I mean, I have, you know, I have an extraordinary well of grief about what happened mm -hmm. that I access very, very, very occasionally. And that I accessed recently, I used to go to this Quaker meeting house when I lived here 10 years ago. And I went for a different reason, but I like walked into this space and I remembered 
everything that had happened in the 10 years since I had last been there, particularly just how sick I'd been and how scared I'd been and how much physical pain I'd experienced. And I just started sobbing and I was just like, that was so hard. And I'm such like a fast, like I'm a fast mover, but a slow processor. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this stuff happened and I was just like, great, metabolize it, metabolize it, metabolize it, like therapy, EMDR, yoga, write a book, go on book tour, do all this stuff. Like all of that was happening. And then my emotional body is just like, wait, what happened? Oh my God. Like that was Mm -hmm. terrible. And so I think that that well of grief, like I can access it occasionally in sort of safe containers, but then I'll come back to being like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like everything is great. Like it's definitely a mental trick that I do to find an upside, but also objectively, I am a different person now. I think that I'm a kinder person. I think that I have healthier relationships. Like a lot of things changed as a result of getting sick, but I also feel, you know, total resentment towards people that have never, I mean, I'm just like, you don't even know how good you have it. And then I'm like, okay, that's a weird vibe, Eva. Like, that's not a good, don't, mm, don't do that. But yeah, it's just enormous. It's just an enormous grief, you know? So I think in five years, I'll feel differently. And in 10 years and 20, assuming I live that long. Oh my gosh, don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to like pummel this desk. We're going to take like some sledgehammers and like... (laughs) Oh my gosh. So Allison and your friendship, just mm-hmm. to touch on, you have this beautiful relationship. She's really sick in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You both take care of each other in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry for this loss. I could like feel yeah. it like yeah. on the page. Oh my gosh. Is there something, I mean, you already referenced her today, like what would Allison say? What are some of the most allison E things that you carry around with you mm-hmm. daily? Just that like my constant self-excoriation is just so not necessary. So I'm... I've separated from my husband and moving towards a divorce, and I feel like I'm just handling it so badly, you know? Like, I'm, like, so sad, and then I'm, like, getting myself into situations and and texting people just constantly, you know, just as—and I just keep thinking, like— like, my first thought is, like, Eva, you're doing this wrong, and this is bad, and you should be, you know, low-key ashamed of yourself, and then I just feel— Allison just being like, oh, yeah, you've never done this before. You don't know how to do it. Like, you're doing great. You're doing a great job. So I sort of hear that. I hear the just, like, her just sort of laughing at my, like, intense, just, like, the intensity with which I try to change my personality all the time. I don't know why. I mean— Oh, thank you. I mean, not that you need this for me. We just met. (laughs) No, I'll take it. But I love your personality. Oh, thank you. No, I'm serious. Like, I could sit here and talk to you all day. Like, you you sound like you're— like, 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 you're trying to hide some sort of monster. Oh yeah, I you're mean, like a is... smart, funny, great person. Like, Thank you. What, I don't know what the. Um, this is this is the core wound. This yes. is what my therapist says. Yeah. Okay. So right. So I have like this. The fundamental core wound is like I am probably bad, and everybody will find out. You know, imminently. And Allison was somebody who was just like, yeah, you're not. You know, you're not. You're not like like perfect, quote unquote, because literally nobody is. And I remember when I first met my husband, I said to her, I was like, he's perfect. I mean, he's like literally perfect. There's like nothing wrong with him. <laughs> And she was like, you know, I really resist using that kind of language. She was like, because he's not perfect, because nobody is. Mm -hmm. And I do hold myself to, I mean, my family is extraordinarily accomplished and really smart. And so I do hold myself to an extraordinarily high standard of behavior and thought. And so when I think about Allison now, I just try and remember her being like, I, I mean, I remember that that moment and I write about this in the book where 
I've just had brain surgery, and I'm like, listen, I should I should get on Tinder. That seems like a great thing to do right now. And I was like, but I should definitely, like, chill out, you know, a little bit. I, sh- I mean, we all know that. And, uh, and she, like, pulls the car over, and she's just like, listen, you are not good at being different, but you're so good at being yourself, which— said already, but it's just like so, I just remember that moment so, so, so profoundly. And she also, yeah, I mean, she was just very, very, very compassionate. And she laughed a lot at what people were doing in the most compassionate way. And also she was not like an abstracted saint, you know? I mean, she definitely had her own sort Mm -hmm. of moments of humanity. You also said, I was trying to find the quote, there was something about, you said, well, basically that I can't find it, but I'll just use my my terrible memory to <laughs> to quote it. But that you were worried, like everybody was being so helpful to you, like friends, mm-hmm. and you couldn't yeah. really reciprocate. Yeah, and that Allison was the one who told you, like, there's no parody in friendship. Like, it's not always like sometimes mm-hmm. people can just love you, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah, which I thought was so nice and so great, and like I feel like sometimes. If someone sends me a gift that's, like, so nice and thoughtful, mm. I'm, like, I feel bad because yeah. I'm, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I have not sent them as nice and thoughtful mm-hmm. a gift. So now I have to be extra nice and thoughtful, and I can't even think of, do you know what I mean? Like, totally. The, the pressure, even though I want to, like, my intentions are also positive, right? Mm-hmm. But then I feel the pressure of, like, what they gave me couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly oh, give it back. yeah. But then I remember, and I'll stop talking about <laughs> No. Like, often you give things because you derive joy from giving. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the same people who gave to you, yeah. right? Like, that's good for them. Exactly. And it's not your job to, like, give it back. Right. Anyway. It's, it's just my <laughs> job to, like, absorb it and, and then— like, thank them. And- yeah. But no, I mean, I feel like if people give me presents, I get so stressed out. Like, I just prefer never to receive presents ever because otherwise I'm like, oh, God, now now I'm in— It's like that, that sort yeah. of feeling of crushing debt. Yeah, that's such a good reminder that it's just not about that at all. So you wrote this article in the New York Times magazine. Mm-hmm. Just the New York Times style section. New York Times style section. Yeah, not the magazine. Oh, the I styles. have not yet cracked the New York Times magazine, but that is. Okay, I mean. I hope any editors that are listening, please call me. Yeah, because the New York Times is not good enough for Eva. That was not, <laughs> that was like slumming it. <laughs> so she's trying to get into the magazine. <laughs> like, anyway, you have this article called How I Learned to Look Believable. And it was really interesting because especially online, it kept flashing little pictures mm-hmm. up. And it's about what outfits you chose as you're going through the sexual harassment suit. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that so you have accused your former grad school, if that's even the right language, former grad school advisor yes. of sexual harassment. Yes. And then you've gone through eight zillion meetings and lawyer yeah. situations. And part of it is resolved and part of it is not resolved. Is that what happened? It's all resolved now. It's all resolved now. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the article, which was such a unique take mm. on sexual harassment, yes. it's like Me Too with a, with a scarf <laughs> yeah, know, or something totally. about like what outfits are right for different mm-hmm. settings. So just like tell me a little about that and what is going, like how did that experience go down? Yeah. Briefly. <laughs> right. So I filed my complaint in March 2016, then I sold my book in May. So the entire time I was writing the book, I was also doing this case. And people have been like, literally, how did you do both? And the answer is I could not have done one without the other because I, I couldn't talk about the case at all. And so I felt this extraordinary, weird, secret pressure. Mm-hmm. And then I would be able to relieve that pressure by going and writing the book, which had nothing to do with harassment. But it was so intellectually absorbing mm-hmm. that it was the only thing that could take my mind off of like this incredibly complicated sort of 
quasi-legal and I'm not a lawyer math that I kept doing where I was like, okay, if I do this and this will happen, if I do and And, you know, my whole intent, like I was very clear in my motives and I was very clear in my intent. And that was really, really useful. But yeah, I went through the Title IX complaint and this investigation, which upheld my allegations. And then the school just didn't really do anything. So then I hired a lawyer and then we threatened to sue based on indifference, which is a specific legal term. And we sort of went back and forth with the school a lot. And then the school actually tried to get him dismissed. And then I had to testify in this sort of weird like show trial where his defense attorney asked me about my sex life, which was obviously not relevant. But what I wanted to do with that piece was, I mean, it was such a high wire act because I was wanting to communicate things that I like wasn't supposed to communicate. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. there's so much adjacency. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I feel like 99% of readers like got the piece. And then every so often I'd see a Facebook comment from somebody who was like, this poor woman, I don't understand why she didn't wear a simple suit and put her hair up. And I was like, oh, no, no, this is a rhetorical, I'm I'm doing a thing with this by talking about my clothes. But also it was true. I mean, I did think every single day about like how I looked. And I think that line of being the sort of heartbreaking line of having to be plausibly, like, harassable, you know, versus, like, completely innocent. I mean, I was like, this is so, what's happening? But he ended up, he was suspended for three years, and he ended up resigning. And I just went to a professional conference, and everybody said that the department is totally different now. And the students that are coming, like, have no idea that it was ever a sort of toxic hellhole. And I was like, that's why I did it. So that students now don't even know. Like, they will never know my name. They will never hear about me. But they get to have a different experience. Like, they get to have the experience that I and all my colleagues deserved. So, totally worth it. That's amazing. I know we're almost out of time. But do you have any advice to aspiring writers? Mm, Practice writing. It doesn't have to be every day. I don't write every day. But I think ask for help with writing and practice and know that it takes a really long time. Like this is my debut memoir, but I've been a professional writer for 15 years and it took me that long to be able to write this book. Know what your motivations are. So I talked to a lot of people who only see publication, like they want to publish a book and be famous. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that having published a book, I'm like, oh, that's actually not the high for me. Like the high for me is the writing. So if you don't like writing, then writing a book is sort of a weird idea. But a lot of people, I think, just want to have a book out. Mm. Whereas if you want to write to process your feelings, that's like a very different— I think it's just like knowing what you want out of writing is really, really important. Like I wrote this book because of like sheer literary ambition and wanting to write another book and wanting to have a career as a writer. I had no compulsion to like share my story or process my emotions. Like I do that in therapy. So yeah, I would just be like very, very clear. And take— Whatever classes are available, like I know that there's a lot of different sort of economic barriers to access for taking classes. And I also think that there's a lot, if you just sort of look online, there's a lot of like short online workshops. There's a range of things. But I became such a better writer by taking five creative writing workshops while I was at UC Berkeley, without which I would have had no understanding of like dialogue or scene or like how to get the plot to go from A to B. So I guess it's just like writing is a lot of work. And if you enjoy the work, it is amazing. And if you don't enjoy the work, you will probably quickly discover that. (laughs) And are you working on anything else now? Or do you have another book in you? I just met with my agent. I was like, 
I am I was like I've achieved literally my life goal, which was to publish mm-hmm. a book, and now I see nothing before me but a wasteland. And she was like, "Okay, cool." Um, <laughs> she was like, "I think you will write another book." So I have some. I, I'm thinking about some things, but a lot of them are pretty whiplashy with this book. You know, like I was like, "I'm going to do a reported book about zoning codes and and not even appear on the page once." And my therapist was like, "This might be a reaction to the intense vulnerability of this book. Like maybe wait until the pendulum sort of settles down." So, short answer, no. Answer, I will. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you. Oh my God, thank you. Moms don't have time to read books. Thank you so much. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 